read the word of God this evening in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 23, and we'll read into chapter 4, up through verse 9. Our text is the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Read God's holy word to that point. Tonight, our text is the first seven verses of chapter 4. Let's read those over again. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Beloved of God, whenever we examine any aspect of the book of Galatians, it's imperative that we remember that there were two main issues with regard to the Judaizers who were troubling these Galatian churches. You will recall that the Apostle Paul 
had been given by God to establish these churches on his first missionary journey. Shortly thereafter, some men came up from Judah who claimed to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, claimed to believe in Christ, but they also brought Judaizing elements into the Christian religion. And they were troubling the Galatian churches with these things in two ways. First of all, they said, that the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws did not fall away with the coming of Jesus Christ. They still stand in the New Testament and are binding upon the people of God. And then second, they said that obedience to those laws and the moral law, but those laws especially, is part of how we are justified. Acts 15 verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. The Apostle Paul is dealing with both of those issues here in the book of Galatians that the Judaizers have brought. If we don't understand that, we can't understand the book. And we won't even understand the individual passage that we're considering tonight either. In the context now of our chapter in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, the apostle has been showing that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were justified by faith, and faith alone, not by faith plus works. So he has been showing that Abraham in the Old Testament already, was justified by faith. Abraham believed, and the object of his faith was accounted for his righteousness. And the apostle has been showing that the reason why justification is by faith alone in the Old Testament and the New Testament is because the covenant of God in which there is justification is one Essentially, one covenant. And therefore, justified in that covenant in the same way, Old Testament and New Testament. And when God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament, it was not because he was now making a new covenant with the Israelites and a new way to be justified in that covenant. Obey this law now, and you will be justified in the covenant but one covenant with one way of justification by faith. Well then, why, Paul, did God give the law at Mount Sinai? And the apostle has answered in chapter 3, generally, first he gave all the law, moral law, and the others, because the law drives us to Christ, and it drove those Old Testament saints to look to Christ in the pictures of the sacrifices. And then second, his answer is, specifically with regard to the civil and ceremonial laws, why did God give that on Mount Sinai? Well, those were necessary for the Old Testament saints Because they were little children. And little children need lots of rules. 
detailed rules? That answer he continues and develops here in chapter 4. They were children. And they needed those laws. And we're not children anymore in the New Testament. We're the church come to maturity. So don't go back to those laws and place yourself under their rule. To do so is to put yourself under bondage. When Christ came, the bondage to civil and ceremonial laws was lifted and the church was brought into a more glorious experience of mature sonship. So that you see, whereas before in chapter 3, the apostle was emphasizing the unity of the covenant. The covenant is one Old Testament and New Testament to argue his case. Now he's going to show the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament to argue his case. To cut off an objection. Well, if the covenant is one Paul, Old Testament and New Testament. Then why are there two Testaments? Why is there the Old Testament or Covenant and the New Testament or Covenant? And the Apostle answers, Though the Covenant is one and there is an essential unity, there is a difference. And the difference is between a child and his youth. And the same child come now to maturity. He's answering, then, the two main issues with these Judaizers. He's saying these Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws do fall away. And then because they fall away, we can't be justified on the basis of obedience to them either. These things we see tonight as the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, shows that with the coming of Jesus Christ, we've gone from children to adults. Let's notice first the meaning of that. Second, the power to bring the church into adulthood. And third, the great expression of our mature sonship. From children to adults, the meaning, the power, and the great expression. In order to describe this difference between the experience of the one covenant of grace in the Old Testament, and the experience of the one covenant of grace in the New Testament, the apostle turns to an illustration of a wealthy father who has a great estate. And he has decided to grant this estate as an inheritance to his son. And he's already made legal provision for this. It's legally done. The will has been made. But he doesn't give it to his son yet because his son is just a little boy. And he's going to wait to actually give him the full inheritance until he comes to maturity and can handle it properly. The apostle gives us that illustration in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, this son, and the heir is the church. As long as he is a child, Old Testament church, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, 
but he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. At the time appointed of the Father is the coming of Jesus Christ, and then the church comes to maturity. In other words, the apostle is saying is that heir, that child, when he's young, he doesn't have all the privileges of being the heir yet, even though he is the heir. In fact, number one, he has a certain kind of bondage. He differeth nothing from a servant. And then number two, he experiences very little of that inheritance that is his while he is a little boy. He's under tutors and governors until the time appointed. Let's take both of those things. First, as a little boy, that heir, that child, is still under a certain bondage. Differeth nothing from a servant. This child, though legally, the entire estate is his. It's been put in writing. Legally, he owns it. Yet in his childhood, he's treated hardly any different from one of the servants on the estate. Like the servants, the child doesn't get to determine hardly anything for himself. He doesn't decide when he goes to bed. He doesn't decide when he wakes up. He doesn't decide what to eat at mealtime. He doesn't decide when to eat it. He doesn't decide what to wear and what not to wear, where to go, what to do. Though he legally is the owner of this vast estate, from many points of view, he's treated no differently from one of the servants. He's under a certain bondage. Second, Though that child is the legal owner of the whole estate, he only experiences a small bit of that inheritance that's his. The full experience of that inheritance is held back from him until he arrives at maturity, at the time that's been appointed by the father. And for good reason, the father does that. You remember the story of the prodigal son. And that younger son who's an heir. But the father is waiting until he gets to a certain age to give him his inheritance. And the younger boy pesters his father, but I want it now, father. I want it now. And the father finally gives it to him. And what does he do? He goes and he squanders it all in riotous living. Making the point here that fathers waited until their sons were of a certain age, maturity, to give them the full inheritance, though it was legally Theirs, they had to wait. That was the church under the Old Testament system. Old Testament Israel was the church at five years old, at ten years old. All of the blessings of the covenant of grace were their right, but much of the experience of it was being held back from them. They weren't mature enough to really handle all of it. Instead, they were dealt with as children. They were taught as children about this inheritance, what it meant that the full inheritance was coming. They were to look forward to it constantly pointed ahead. More of its coming going to be poured out to you. And they tasted it themselves to a certain extent, but it was so limited for them. They were under the elements of the world, Paul says in verse 3. 
It means they were under the basics, the elementary things. They were in elementary school in the Old Testament. In elementary school, you learn the basics. You learn the ABCs. You learn basic math. You learn how to read. And then as you mature and get older, there's more for you to learn, deeper things for you to learn, until finally you're reading literature and studying calculus. But they were children. They were taught the basic elements. They weren't taught all the glorious depths of the Trinity of God, for example. They knew that God was one and that he was more than one and perhaps knew something about the Spirit and the Son, but they didn't know it with any depth to it. They were learning the things of God in pictures in the Old Testament, all the sacrifice and all the feasts and all the symbols, like you would give a picture book to a little child. They didn't have the the full inheritance of the things of God, all the depths of the glories of his covenant given to them. They weren't mature enough for that. They tasted it, but in a child way. And as little children, they didn't have the freedom that comes with maturity either. They had a certain bondage, like that little boy on his father's estate. They couldn't decide for themselves what to wear, what to eat, where to go, what to do. Just read the book of Leviticus sometime. Most of the articles of clothing that you're all wearing here tonight as you come to church wouldn't be allowed to wear if you were in the Old Testament. Unless that clothing you're wearing is pure cotton or pure polyester, they weren't allowed to mix threads. Food? You couldn't mix meat and dairy. So you couldn't boil your, your steak in a, or your roast, rather, in a pot of water mixed with some cream in it. For the feast, eat this on this day and this only and not that. They were children. They needed this. They needed to learn what holiness was by these kinds of things. That threads stay separate. That meat and dairy stay separate. And that's a picture of the fact that you are to be separate. You are to be different. Cut off from sin. Holy to the Lord. This is how they learned the antithesis. All the pictures of all the sacrifices. This is how they learned Christ. And the atonement for sin. As children. But for you people of God, it's not that way, is it? You're the same people. You're the same church. You're living in the same covenant of grace. But what accounts for the difference of what you experience now, and they do in these things. You are them come to maturity. The church has arrived at a more mature sonship. Verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God, through Christ, you don't have the kind of sonship that really resembled servanthood or bondage of youth, but Adulthood, 
heirs of God who've been given the whole estate in Jesus Christ, as it were. When that heir is grown up, that boy, when he comes to maturity in father's house, he no longer has every last decision made for him. You can tell more the difference between him as the son and those as the servants on the estate. And though there's directions for what to eat, he's not told what to eat at every meal. You must eat this and you can't decide for yourself. And though there's directions for what he should wear and principles, he doesn't have to be told wear this and not that on this day. You can enact those principles for yourself now. The child, he starts to apply the life of the estate to himself consciously and willingly. The principles that his parents raised him with. He's taking them into himself. They live in his mind and his heart. And he's going to make his own decisions to a certain extent and apply these things wisely in his life. And he's given this child who's come to maturity, more of the inheritance that's his. He was taught just the ABCs when he was little, just basic math. But now he's being brought in on the estate into discussions about, well, what should we do with this piece of property? Should we keep it or should we sell it? He's, he's discussing with his father about the, the pigs and the cows. He's taken in to a more mature understanding of the life of the estate. He becomes even a conscious, willing protector of the, of the principles that his father used to run the estate. He understands why his father does it this way now and why this is the life that his father set out for him. And so he imbibes them. They live in his heart and his soul and he, he carries them out consciously and willingly applying them to the life of the estate. And his fellowship with his father is a more mature kind of fellowship. That's the New Testament church. That's you. Not that you're not under law anymore. In the sense of those laws ruling over your life. You're not under any law in respect to bondage of the curse that's due to you for them. But you still have the moral law over you. The great ten commandments that are to be applied in your life. The center of Father's will, as it were, of command. But those Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws fall away. And so you're given the principle of of modesty. But you're not told, don't wear this and wear this. You're adults now. Learn how to apply it. You're told not to be a glutton. 
but you're not told, don't eat this, eat this. You're adults now in the covenant. Here's the principle of Father's will. Apply it in your life faithfully. There's a certain freedom from the Old Testament bondage and the applying of the commands of God's word to our lives. Every now and then you come across someone in the church who really really wants to be living in the Old Testament yet. Really wants there to be a, a law for every last detail of the Christian life. And you want to say to them, you need to come to maturity and apply the Ten Commandments to your life and watch as the apostles apply them to the New Testament church. Work this out wisely in your life. There's others. There's others who you come across in the church who you almost want to say to them, you know, you're so immature that I almost wish you could go back to that Old Testament system because you can't seem to handle this. You don't know how to apply the principles of God's Word and the great Ten Commandments to your life. You're living as though it's license, as though God loves me and therefore I could do whatever I want to do. And I don't, I don't take the, the principles of Father as a mature son and imbibe them so that they're living in me, so that I, I walk and carry out what He's given to me in my life with my mind reflective of His mind. The Apostle Paul anticipating this possibility, is going to say in the next chapter, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Use it as a mature adult God, under God's law and under the principles of Father's house. But there's a certain freedom from the Old Testament bondage. And there's a certain fullness to the inheritance that comes in now. We're brought deeper into the things of God and of his purposes in his covenant. Like a mature son learns, oh, this and this and this, and this explains why he's doing it this way. And the books of the covenant are complete in the sacred scriptures and we're given to open them and to swim in them and to dive into the mind of God in his covenant in a way that they weren't in the Old Testament. And because we've come to maturity, we're given less pictures in the New Testament. Only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But for the most part, we're brought into deeper concepts, abstract concepts. The things of God that were there in the Old Testament. But in shadows are explained more fully, come out into the light more profoundly so that we are given the privilege to enter into Father's mind and purposes in a way that they weren't. The office of believer is itself much richer and bears more responsibility in the New Testament than the Old. We're called to more actively and consciously and willingly protect the truths of God and the things of God 
and to promote them and to send them forth and to enter into them ourselves and to delight in them as mature sons and daughters. That our fellowship with God is a deeper, more mature kind of fellowship. Like an older child has a certain deeper, more mature fellowship with his earthly father. And though we're still still looking ahead to more that's coming and the greatest entrance of the inheritance to us in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. Nonetheless, it's quite wonderful that you're born into the New Testament church, not the Old Testament church. What privileges are yours? Are you aware of them? Are you taking advantage of them? Are you entering into them? Are you seeing what he's given to you? Or are you taking them for granted? Entering into the deep things of God. Your greatest joy that I think God's thoughts after him in the scriptures. Knowing Father in a deeper more wonderful way. I I know his purposes. I see them and I, I imbibe them. And his principles direct my life and I see why he's made life this way under these principles. And I want to live this way for his glory. I want to protect his truths and what he's doing in his covenant. My mind is following and tracing his mind. This move from childhood to adulthood for the church, we are told comes with the coming of Jesus Christ the first time. The time appointed of the Father, which was when, verses 4 and 5, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The sending of his son is what accomplished this change from childhood to a more mature sonship. And the sending forth of his son occurred, the apostle says, in the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, image there, And the fullness of time is like a bucket. A bucket that's being slowly filled with water through the Old Testament. Filled, 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 until finally you get to the time of the coming of Christ and that bucket is filled all the way to the brim. And when the right time has come, it's filled all the way to the top so that if Christ came one second too late, and that bucket would overflow. And if he came one second too early, it wouldn't really be totally full. He came at the exact right time, the fullness of time that the Father had appointed. 
And throughout that Old Testament church, as he was Old Testament time, as he was filling up that bucket of time, he was growing and he was maturing his child, his church, until she was ready to come to maturity with the coming of Jesus Christ. Five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, as it were. He's teaching her and maturing her so that she'd be prepared for this when he came. You can even see that at the end of the Old Testament. When God brings the Israelites back from the Babylonian captivity, back to the promised land. They rebuild the temple, as you recall, but it's not that glorious. The people aren't that taken by it anymore. The Ark of the Covenant isn't in it. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it when he conquered Jerusalem. The pictures are are becoming dim and falling away. There's no king restored to the throne in Israel after they return from the Babylonian captivity, and they won't have a king again until Christ comes as the true spiritual king. He's turning them away from some of these pictures, types and shadows, and he's getting them ready to see the realities more fully. Read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and see how he's teaching the church there at the end of the Old Testament to rely more on the revealed word, the Old Testament scriptures that had already come and not on direct revelation to prophets anymore. It's time to grow up, my church. See that the kingdom was never without being under foreign control from the return of the Babylonian captivity on. Because God would start to point them away from the earthly kingdom to the reality of the spiritual kingdom. See that he scatters the Israelites after the Babylonians let them go. Some return, others are scattered throughout the empire. He's going to prepare for the time when the church will be gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He's working in the very nations themselves to prepare for his church coming to maturity. He ensures there's a unified road system in the Roman Empire, that there's one language throughout the empire so that when the Apostle Paul goes forth, he can gather these from every nation, tribe, and tongue into this more mature New Testament church. He's leading her up to this moment. And then when this young girl in Nazareth is old enough, he moves Caesar Augustus to call for a worldwide tax, bringing this young woman to Bethlehem. And it's time for the church to grow up. The precise moment he sent forth his son. Time to go, my son. Now, the bucket is full. And he sent forth his son. 
didn't send him forth, who would become his son. But he sent forth the one who was his son already, as the Apostle Paul recognizes. Now, long before Jesus was in the womb of Mary and come out of that womb in the manger, he's been God's son. He sent forth the one who was his son already down into our world. Paul understands that this is the second person of the Trinity being made flesh here, that he's been the son of God from eternity past. And that the triune God had determined that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the only begotten Son, would be the one who would come down in the fullness of time and be made of a woman. When that time came, God sent him forth so that the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, is also at the same time made of a woman, verse 4, fully God and fully man. And because fully man, as well as fully God, he's also made by this under the law, verse 4. For every creature that comes into God's world comes under God's law. He is creator, all else is creature, and as creator, all is under his law. Jesus too in his humanity. No creature of God can exist outside of God's law. And that law always comes to his creatures and says, do this and live. Don't do this and die. And so the fish creatures are under his law that they must swim in the water and swim to my glory. If they disobey that law and go upon the earth, they die. And so trees are under his law. The law for the tree is that it must live in the earth with its roots deep into the soil. And if it doesn't, then it dies. And so human beings are upon his earth. And they must love him with all their mind, heart, and soul. And show that love by obedience to his Ten Commandments. Or die. And this Jesus too comes under the law when he's made of a woman. And since he comes really as the last man of the Old Testament, he comes under the Old Testament laws too, all of those civil and ceremonial laws upon his life. He came under that bondage of the Old Testament system with rules everywhere he turned about what to eat and what not to eat. That's why he was circumcised the eighth day. That's why he went to all the feasts And you could be sure he never combined dairy and meat together. It's astounding, really, that this is God who gives the law to his created reality and now at the same time comes under that law as he takes to himself a humanity made of the woman and he bears the weight of that law upon himself. And he obeys it perfectly, including the heart of it, Love me with all your mind, heart, and soul. He paid the price for us who disobey that law, whether we're in the Old Testament or New Testament. The law killed him. 
Not because he couldn't obey it, he obeyed it perfectly, even though civil and ceremonial laws, and he did it from a heart that loves his God and Father. But the law killed him because we couldn't obey it. And we couldn't obey not just the civil and ceremonial laws, but the heart of that law and the Ten Commandments too. And all of our sins and breakings of the law were upon him. And they killed him for our sins upon him. And he took hell for us upon his cross. Redeeming us. Who were ourselves under the law. In two ways. He redeemed us from the law generally by redeeming us from the curse of that law. Something the apostle talked about in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree. He bore the curse against us for our disobediences to the law, so that we're free from the law in this sense, free from its curse. And then secondly, by his obedience and death, he also lifted those civil and ceremonial laws off of the church. Now poised as she was to come to maturity. He fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. All of them were pointing to his cross. And by dying upon his cross, he was the reality that they were all pointed to, so they fall away. Upon his cross, he dies for elect Jews and elect Gentiles from every nation, tribe, and tongue, lifting off the civil laws that kept the church in the one nation of Israel. And he ended the church's bondage to that Old Testament system there upon the cross. So that the elementary things, the basics, were no longer holding the church back, but she was able to rise up into her maturity. And what's more, at the same time he lifted the bondage of the Old Testament system, positively gave her this higher, deeper sonship, a fuller experience of the inheritance of the covenant. It's imperative that you see that the apostle in verse 5 is showing how in Christ the two restrictions of the Old Testament experience the bondage and of the inheritance held back somewhat for them are now reversed by the coming of Christ and his death upon the cross. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, one to redeem them that were under the law, to deliver them from that, the bondage of that system. And then second, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's the fullness of the inheritance. A greater adoption as sons. And now you understand why the Apostle Paul calls the Spirit in verse 6, the Spirit of His Son. God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, New Testament Christians. 
His son who came down here and dwelt among us and lived in his real humanity in the fullness of covenant life in sonship before his father. And though he was under the bondage of those Old Testament and civil and ceremonial laws, he knew sonship better than any for he was God himself, the son in human flesh. And now he goes back up And God gives him the Spirit, and he pours out the Spirit as the Spirit of himself, the Spirit of his Son to you, to bring you his own sonship. That's something they didn't have. They were sons to be sure, yes. They had the Holy Spirit, yes. Not like you. You have the Spirit as the Spirit of his Son. The triune God planned. My son, when you go down and accomplish their redemption, I'll bring you back home. And I'll give you the entire third person of the Trinity to pour out upon them as the spirit of yourself with your own experience of sonship while you were here upon the earth so that he gives them what you have. A sonship before God, deeper, richer, more marvelous than they had in the Old Testament. So that first, we read in verse 4, God sent forth his son. And then second, verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son. To bring his own sonship to his church. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 calls the Spirit the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit who brings Christ's own sonship down to you so that you adopted sons are brought into the kind of life that he himself has. Isn't that marvelous? This is what you have, New Testament church. This is your salvation. This is your privilege, a a greater sonship, a deeper, more mature, a higher, a closer, fuller fellowship. And everything in the New Testament church life is flavored by this. It's the great New Testament reality the church is given to enjoy. Embrace it. Be thankful for it. Your grown-up sons. You have a more mature relationship with your father that's more intimate and deep. You know secret things that he tells us that he didn't tell them in the Old Testament. You have something of Christ's own experience of sonship granted to you already now. Do you know What is one of the greatest expressions of that higher sonship? And that shows, manifests the difference between their sonship and the Old Testament and ours and the new. It's that you get to cry out to him. Abba. Father. And they didn't. 
And because you are sons, verse 6, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can search every word of the Old Testament. You won't find a single instance where the church cries out to him, Father, Father. Abba is just Father in Aramaic. You'll find many instances of the church crying out to him. The Psalms are full of it and beyond, but never this. Father, Father. And it's not that they didn't know him at all as Father. They did. Though they were young, they were still his children. He says to Pharaoh, let my son Israel go. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. It was there, but it was so limited. The bondage to the Old Testament laws, their youthful immaturity, that kept back so much of this experience from them. Can you imagine? When the disciples heard the Lord Jesus when he was upon the earth, therefore praying the way that he did, addressing God this way, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things. Father, if thou wilt be willing to remove this cup, and then can you imagine when they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, and he said, you too, come on. You too. Our Father, who art in heaven, must have hit them like a brick in the face. His own sonship. Son of God in our flesh. His own sonship that he's sharing with us. That we may enjoy now too. Marvelous, marvelous work of that spirit of his son sent into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. Who's doing the crying? The spirit. Sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, spirits crying, Abba, Father. Don't forget to add Romans 8, verse 15, to the picture. When the apostle teaching similar truth says it this way. The spirit of adoption is given to us. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father, so that you get the point. The spirit is crying within us. That's his... This is what he was sent for. The spirit of his son. Bringing his sonship down to us. So that he's, he's crying, Abba, Father, but not in such a way that he, that he pushes us out of the way and says, here, let me cry out to God. But in such a way that he, he comes within us and he cries, leading us to cry, Abba, Father, I'm your son.
You ever seen a 20-year-old cry out to their earthly father? Ever seen a 45-year-old cry out to his earthly father? There's something deep and profound going on there. You ever seen a 20-year-old, 45-year-old, 60-year-old crying out to his heavenly father? There's something deep and profound going on there. Maturity of sonship. Oh, but that's for the weak. That's for the immature. No. That's for the sons of the New Testament. The daughters of the New Testament. Not just saying, Crying out. Father, Father, sometimes because the heart is overwhelmed with with thanksgiving, because I know in a deeper way the mercies of God to me than they knew in the Old Testament, and I see them. I see the fullness of what he's done. Haven't you seen a mature son come back to his father and say, Father, I see now what you are doing, what you've done for me. The New Testament church does this. I see. Thanks, Father, Father. Sometimes it's crying out in just all-out wonder and worship at him. As the mature sons and daughters of the New Testament understand the sweep of redemptive history and they see the fullness of what he's doing and the deep things of God and they cry out with wonder and awe, Father, Father, you're astounding. Sometimes it's the cry of a son who is desperate, who's supposed to be so mature because he's in the New Testament after all and have things handled. He's have more fullness of the inheritance given to him, but he doesn't know what to do right now. And he doesn't understand the path that is before him. Father, Father, help me. Sometimes it's the cry. Of the one who, though he is a mature New Testament saint, he's been reduced to utter infancy by the trials and difficulties of his life, and he has nothing left except this. Father. Father. Sometimes, because he has more freedom in the New Testament, he begins to think of himself as independent, and he doesn't need anything and anybody, and he doesn't really need him until God touches his life and he remembers again, but I'm still a son. Father. Father. Whatever the case, beloved, it is your greatest privilege. The angels desire to look into this thing. No matter how mature you are in 
this New Testament age, you never outgrow the fact that you are yet a son. And he is your father. And though you understand it more deeply, you need it more deeply too. And the wonder of it is astounding. Who am I to be given this? And to know him who I know this way. To cry to him with this cry. Enter into it. Thank him for it. Cry to him now. Thanks and praise. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearing and strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.